We're going to come out of the EU on October the 31st. No ifs or buts. This advice is not a request. It is an instruction. Stay at home, protect lives. We've just lost four elections in a row. We've got a mountain to climb. First time I ever heard of Black Lives Matter, I said, that's a terrible name. It's so discriminatory. I want justice for him because he was good. There is an awakening going on. Activism works. Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. I'm Claire Preecy and today we're talking about Black Lives Matter. It's a movement that started about seven years ago, initially as a social media hashtag after a white man was acquitted of the murder of black teenager Trayvon Martin in Florida. Over the summer, it grew into street protests in more than 4,000 cities and towns across the world, this time in reaction to the killing of security guard George Floyd by a policeman in Minneapolis. Alan Finlayson, it was sort of surprising to me how many people protested in all those cities across the world. We don't often see things like that, do we? No, we don't. Uh, There are occasionally periods where protests about an issue sparks off over the planet. The late 1960s, anti-war protests, demands for women's liberation and so forth. But this was quite remarkable, I think, in the way in which a single event encapsulated a much larger set of ongoing um, anxieties and contestations. And then I think in the context of everyone being locked down, watching their videos, people had an opportunity to experience what they were seeing and connect with it and that in turn sparked a whole range of demonstrations and actions so it's both old everyone getting mobilized around something but also new in the way it happened through social media so today we're joined by tessa mcwatch who's a professor of creative writing at uea and also anshu mondal a professor of modern literature and you've both written extensively about race so welcome to the podcast thanks claire I wondered as well for both of you, I mean, over the years, we've seen a lot of a lot of um, events where uh, black people have been killed by white police officers in America. And I wondered why you felt that the protests had erupted this summer in the way that they did. Tessa, do you want to start? Well, I think, you know, one of the, the, the factors definitely is the um, access to video footage that um, everyone with a phone has. And so that um, and the access to social media that moves things around the world very quickly. And, um, but also, um, you know, it has, like you said, the Black Lives Matter has started a long time ago and it is an old thing. It's not a new um, movement. And therefore to see this again and again and again, every year, you know, we haven't kept track, you haven't, I haven't been able to keep track of all the the black people, including, UK citizens, black citizens who've been killed by police. You know, the, um, is it Mark Duggan from that, that sparked the 2011 riots? Um, so it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, I think it's fatigue, really, you know, and I think in, in COVID in lockdown, we had that moment to experience that fatigue because so much around us was changing as well. Do you think, Anshu, do you think um, the last three years of what's happened politically has made a difference? Uh, I mean, you know, there's been huge sort of shifts in the world, haven't there, in in what's been going on? Yeah, I mean, with the Brexit vote uh, in which racialised ways of mobilising the the Leave vote were so prominent, and in the uh, election of President Trump, what we can sort of see is is racism not only being rehabilitated, but becoming increasingly visible and legitimately visible in the public sphere. The, the time, if ever there was one, where sort of the standard means of uh, kind of trying to 
enact racial equality through parliamentary democracy, through petitioning, through uh, debates in the in the uh, House of Commons. The limits of that have been exposed badly by what, what's happened um, in the last few years. And I think also, if I can just add to that, it's not uh, it, what it, what it's also done is created, especially in the last few months in the states, um, created a sort of state-sanctioned oppression of that very movement you know and you know we see the 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 u.s bringing out the the army to to stop protests on the west coast and you know so it's become associated with with the establishment you know to that racism has become associated with the very powers that are leading us and therefore legitimized in in ways that have not up to this point i think have been so legitimized I mean, structural kind of inequalities and violence um, have been in inflicted by the state on racialized minorities throughout, but it's been relatively covert. It's been relatively, you know, so you might call it invisible violence or invisible um, racism. Um, but these events in the last decade or so, they, 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 it, it, you know, it, the kind of mask has slipped, if you like. And uh, that has prompted um, a recognition, I think, that, that, that there is a, something deeply wrong in terms of the structure of the society in which we live, uh, which is often not visible to people. Um, and that kind of coming into vision has, has, made, has made a lot more people kind of galvanise a lot more people to protest. Is there a sense in which, as, as, as well as things becoming visible, that the last few years where the divisions between people have become quite stark, that actually there's a kind of sense in which people who might be in the middle and be, well, I don't really care, I don't really want to pick this up or the other, sort of feel they have to take a side now? I think so. I think that there's, you know, the, the traditional liberal position has been challenged by that divide that you're talking about. You know, that left, um, radical left or far right, um, there, is a, there is a sense that people have to take sides or take a stand. We see things be in front of us that, that um, are unfolding in a way that we thought was, was in the past, that was things that weren't going to happen anymore. And now, you know, both in, in terms of racism and in the, in the issues around climate catastrophe, people are having to say, okay, where, this is where I stand on this. And also, I think I think racism, the covert racism that I told you about, for a long time, sort of operated by not making things black and white, um, by kind of, as it were, uh, going beyond the skin, uh, as it and 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 becoming more cultural, made it more difficult to to you know the, those polarized sort of here's where I stand kind of responses. Uh, become become a lot more uh, difficult because the, the 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 way in which racism worked was ambiguous. It was ambivalent. You know, it, it played on uncertainty in in the way in which it it kind of operated. I think that was uh, sort of enacted like the, by the BNP, for instance, in moving moving quite firmly from skin color, pigmentation to culture, religion, and so on in the in in, in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, uh, so that you know, Islamophobia then became a big bigger register in in, in that sort of right wing discourse. Um, but now again, that, that what you talked about that polarization has 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 kind of made it more more apparent as a clear issue. Um, and it's made people kind of understand that there is um, there is a, a stand to be taken. Alan, you've done a lot of work on this, on looking at, at far right communities online, particularly. It feels like it's entering the mainstream. Is that how you see it? Oh, definitely. That, yes, there's a couple of different things happening at once. I think on the on the one hand, there is um, 
across the kind of spectrum of political opinion in the right, where in the past there has been a sort of a division between those bits which are seen as being beyond kind of the mainstream and those which are the mainstream. There's been a kind of coming together, which is partly to do with what Anshu says, political groups downplaying kind of a certain kind of explicit racial differentiation to talk about culture, values, these kinds of things, but also moving in to start talking about, well, it's the liberal elites who are preventing us from expressing what we think and so forth. And then that, that has, and at the same time, sort of mainstream elements of, of the Conservative Party, for example, have kind of moved away from a kind of centralising their beliefs in good governance, sticking to tradition, moving things slowly and becoming themselves a little bit more radical in a way. So there's a strange sort of convergence in the middle there, which gives a kind of respectability to positions that once didn't have it. But then, of course, online, there's this whole range of new platforms and ways in which political <coughs> opinions can be communicated and argued over. And that has begun to make certain kinds of things that were seen as being fringe positions become more uh, mainstream. Uh, so in a way, you're seeing kind of, I think, part of this kind of hardening of divisions is you get odd kind of bedfellows. People I know who, who disagree about many things in many politically find themselves on the same side because they broadly agree that people shouldn't be shot by the police uh, and they think racism is wrong. And at the same time, you find kind of people who on, on the other side who usually would be thought to have very different views, maybe find themselves finding alliances and that's causing both this division but also there is a lot of instability within both the left and right side of these things too. Watching the historian David Olasoga in his McTaggart lecture this year he said that Black Lives Matter had transformed debates about race more profoundly than any phenomenon I have known in my lifetime and he talked about how it's um, in, encouraged white communities, white people to go out and educate themselves. But the other thought, example that I thought that was interesting was um, the statues. So the Oxford students at Oxford University have been campaigning for years to bring down the, st the, the statue of Cecil Rhodes. But after the Colston statue came down in Bristol, the university agreed to do so within a few days. And I wondered, is that sort of colonial history, that, that legacy, there something that stops us from moving forward? There is a deep investment in that colonial legacy that has never been acknowledged and, 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 it, uh, and it's difficult to acknowledge because uh, no, nobody's taught about this stuff. Um, and um, if they are taught about anything that happened in the, in the British Empire, it's often in a kind of very uh, sanitised version. Um, so even the bad stuff is sanitised and then the good stuff, the, the quote, scare quote, good stuff, is, uh, is uh, you know, is amplified. You know, it's all about railways and telegraph wires and, and, and so on. And never about how those railways were about uh, transporting troops to put down rebellions and, uh, and, and so on and so forth, to facilitate um, colonial governance. Um, so, yes, there's a learned ignorance that is a real obstacle to, to, to how to deal with this. Um, and I guess one of the things that BLM changed was that it, it, it allowed, well, it didn't, it no longer allowed institutions to hide behind that. Yeah, um, for my part, I mean, you know, I, I'm not a fan of statues at all. Um, one man's hero is another man's um, source of trauma, probably. So I think no matter who, you know, when, when, we, when we glorify events like that and make them permanent, 
um, I think we will run into problems at all stages of history. So I think what, what's happening now is that kind of redress to, to think that, well, we have to think about history. We have to think about how history is in the room with us at all moments. And I think that is a really important um, uh, um, consequence of the, of the statue um, issue and the, and the bringing down of the statues is it does bring into the room the discussion of why this statue is here, who is this person, rather than this kind of blind wandering around that we do that, you know, in, 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 a built atmosphere, in the built environment, we are surrounded by um, colonialism. You know, we are surrounded by pow the power of, of colonialism. And, and, and I think that we need to bring that into our understanding at all times. Uh, one of the things that statues make you do is literally look up to them. Mm. Um, and, you, you know, what does that do to um, to people whose ancestors were slaughtered, murdered, uh, traumatised by such people? What does it do to have to look up to these people in their, as mm. Tessa says, in, in their built environment? So, and, and it does, you know, represent the saying that, um, you know, the, the history is made by the winners, you know, and, and, and that we, I think we need to get rid of that whole notion of, of um, a one way of looking at history. Do you think, Alan, we've become fixated on this idea of Great Britain, you know, and how, you know, with this great nation that harks back to an imperial era, which actually was responsible for suppressing so many people? You know that, that we're we're blinded to the actual truth, and we're kidding ourselves. Yes, I think there's a there's a lot of different forces in play here, and there's a, a and one of them is a kind of longer unfolding process of change in the ways in which people in Britain think about the state in which they live and think about where it comes from. Um, there's a lot of people for whom, on the one hand, lots of imperial history is not known or understood or thought about by most people, and it isn't very present in uh, the front of our minds. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who had some experience and direct involvement in that colonial experience, whether it was particularly through war uh, and, and through the decolonization process in the post-war period. Um, so there's kind of uncertainty and hesitancy about where that fits into the kind of legacy of the kind of national story. At the same time, what's been going on is that the UK itself has been changing its role and breaking up. It's not so present in the lives of Canada or Australia as it was. Scotland and Wales are more independent than they were and that leaves kind of England thinking well hang on a minute who are we where do we come from what are we for and I think that the the, the colonial role of the United Kingdom have played such a key part in, in holding the United Kingdom together and giving people within it a sense of where they came from who they were their role in the world which many of them went out and carried out with all that gone there's this kind of question well what in what's England then how is England supposed to think itself and how is it supposed to be? And I don't think that we've got an answer to that apart from a version of this kind of colonial story that is somewhat is largely mythical and is carries with it lots of things that are holding the country and people in it down. Those, 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 that, those myths are very resonant, aren't they? And one of the ways in which they resonate is by giving you a sense of a place in, in the wider sense of the wider world, the wider order of things. Um, and a lot of that is very, very indexed with, with racism, which is also a discourse about giving you a sense of place uh, in terms of a hierarchy um, where, where, where you, so there's a sort of spatial and hierarchical kind of uh, ladders are, are, are kind of joined together by, by that, by these myths. And 
one of the things that you see the discomfort that black lives matter protests are causing in, among some people um is that actually it's showing that people aren't willing to stay in their place um that's what anti-racism is broadly speaking about is about resisting and challenging the place into which you're put by these 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 discourses it's interesting that you bring up sort of making making people feel uncomfortable because we saw this week that there were 15,000 complaints to Ofcom about um, the TV programme Britain's Got Talent. And in that programme, there was a dance group called Diversity and they did a performance in which a one of the black dancers ha was knelt on by a white person, a white man dressed as a police officer. And there were lots of people who complained about that. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about about why that was. Alan, do you want to go first? Yeah, so there's a, from what I read, a lot of the protests complained about politics kind of intruding on light entertainment and complained that, that the routine was politicising something that should be not political. And that's a super kind of interesting question, which is, would it be any less political to say, no, you can't have that dance here? Fixing that line about what you can and can't do and say about certain things in certain places is itself a political one. So I think there's a question about what we think of as being you know, a legitimate or how we decide when and where we're going to talk about these kinds of things. It seems to me there are some things you can't avoid talking about in all kinds of walks of life. You're not talking about the tax rate or uh, the latest legislation. You're talking about how people generally get on and think about themselves. So that's what I can't think of a better place to explore that than through art performance literature, much better than what you would get in formal political debate. But it was, so it's interesting that people, that people find that, that disturbance when that is confronted and don't quite know how to deal with it and want to say stop doing it stop stop making me think about this and tessa you know you're you're a creative writer you you write about about these all all these issues all the time what was what's your reaction well my reaction is that ev ev absolutely everything we do is political so in not doing something is also political so not in not engaging in those in those conversations is all also a very strong political assertion that says for you that the status quo is okay so the status quo for you is not talking about it which means that you have some sort of power and that um you know that that's where i i i, I you know disagree i think everything we do is political you know, I, I had a um, uh, an experience of this back in the uh, early part of the summer when the Black Lives Matter protests first uh, erupted and, and the Premier League restarted. And um, one of the grandparents of a, a, a child who goes to the same school as mine, um, we often, when we're watching them play cricket or something, would, would talk about sport because he's a Chelsea fan and I'm a Liverpool fan and it's a kind of bonding thing. Um, and, and on this occasion, um, I, I just mentioned something about the Premier League, how it was great that the Premier League was starting up again. And he went into some sort of tirade about how um, how he, he wasn't watching the football anymore because it was, it was completely uh, objectionable that this, the, the players were taking a knee at the beginning of the thing and how he can't, you know, this is not a... That, that this is not a place for politics and, and so on. And, you know, I tried to remind him about the anti-apartheid movement, but it was really disturbing to me how how that sort of, uh, you know, largely black players in the Premier League taking a knee to protest against their own dehumanisation is taken as being offensive by somebody who is sort of... A, tries to maybe disinvest invest themselves from feeling racist about it by saying, you know, 
it shouldn't be politics and sports and politics shouldn't mix and that sort of thing. So I guess my question is, what what, what do we do about it? A lot of the universities have been um, working very hard on a project called Decolonising the Curriculum um, to, to look at the way they teach and look at their reading lists and to try and be more inclusive. Um, do we do that? Do we do other things? How, how do we how do we deal with this? We do it. All of it, I think, you know, I mean, there's a point in the summer where after after George Floyd that I was asked for all kinds of reading lists for Black Lives Matter matters, um, you know, um, publications or, or people that were trying to educate people. And I just got really furious because <laughs> I thought, you know, um, no, there, it, time for reading. Yes. But, you know, we also need to be on the street. We also need to um, um, vote. We also need to speak and to have conversations with um, all of the people in our lives and our students, etc. And we need to decolonize at the university. Um, so I think it's a, it's not a matter of doing one thing. I think for me, anyway, it's a very personal matter of doing everything almost all the time, which is very exhausting. But it's the only sort of the only game in town at the moment. I also think there's a really great opportunity as well here. Um, going back to what we said earlier about the broad solidarities that have emerged between. Uh, not just racialized uh, minority groups, but also uh, among many people who hadn't maybe consciously thought about racism very much at that point and have made their stand and taken a decision. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was uh, we have an opportunity to build some of these alliances and solidarities that, that I think haven't had, we haven't had for a long time. Um, I take Alan's point that, that you know solidarities are being built on the other side as well um, across across groups and sectors. But um, it is heartening to find people suddenly becoming interested in this and realizing where they where you know where they stand on it and and, and wanting to join. Um, I guess always the threat. I mean, we've been down these roads before, and always the threat for for those of us who are minoritized uh, is. is is, is at what point it becomes co-opted or subsumed within prevailing kind of ways of thinking about race. Um, because I think one of the things we need to kind of understand is race thinking is part of the problem here. It's not just, you can't just have racism and say that's the bad bit, but race is okay. Racism and race is kind of fundamentally linked and race making you know we are making race every time um we have power uh over a, a group of, of people you know and making them other and i think that's adding adding to what you're saying and you is, is that what you meant in your book tessa where you said that race is a societal construct that, that we're ma that we're making yeah. it rather than it being we're making it all the time yeah we're making it based on on you know economic social um national borders all the time and we you know it's it's i won't get into the, the issue of the plantation now but that was the structure i was dealing with in terms of how it makes um race and i think also that you know that that it's so we inhabit it so intimately as a language of de describing human difference that we sometimes lose sight of the fact that race was a category that was invented for the purpose of racism <laughs> and that you know it's not a natural or neutral category you know so to think along racial lines and this is where i think the protests um, might galvanize some thinking into thinking beyond what it might mean to just simply protest against 
racism, but actually to think beyond racism as, uh, as well and beyond race. Can I ask a difficult question then? Um, mm. Which is, because I think that's right. I mean, I agree with that. How does one think beyond that, these processes of racialization or minoritization, you said? But there's, but there's a risk, isn't there, that in you do, if, you, if one does that too quickly, you kind of ignore people's actual experiences of being Absolutely. raised. So, you know, how does one deal with that, that difficulty? If I'm, on the one hand, as a white person, sort of ignoring somebody else's race and saying, you see, I'm, that's me being very nice and generous, but actually maybe I'm ignoring precisely mm. the things that, that are really central to their experience that need to be addressed. I think a lot of people find, are unsure where to go with that. How, how does one do that? I mean, I don't have an answer, but I don't know yeah. what you think about Absol that. Well, absolutely, Alan. I think, you know, it's, race is a construct, but it's also a very real thing on the street. It's also play, it's played out every day in our history of it. And we, and that history, is is um main, is maintained you know we do function as a plantation society with minority white um at the top with um laborers who are primarily people of color and black be in in a structure beneath them you know and so and there there's movement in that but it's a it's a kind of um movement that is uh racialized in the opposite way you know so that whiteness becomes something that's that's um given power and you get to move through the through the um, the structure, but it is a construct of whiteness, and it is a construct of a blackness. But they are real as well. And also, I mean, this Alan, what you pinned pinpointed there is the central problem or problematic in anti-racist um, politics and thought, which is that you have to uh, kind of, as it were engage on the ground on which you are dominated um but try to therefore not naturalize that ground um to to kind of overcome it to to erase it as well uh, i guess you have to do both you have to kind of work up simultaneously at thinking beyond race as well as engaging with racial uh effects and inequality well I mean, in a sense what the, the thing to remember is it is that this is this is a process not an event isn't it it's not a yeah. case of kind of here's a thing we'll do and then we're done with it you've sorted all that out it's a process and in the process we change we become something a little bit different from what what we are i think that's partly what's happening now in some respects is, is people are thinking afresh about their history their context and that in time will change how people are in the world so but it's but it's so it's a process isn't it and thinking how we go through that rather than um, and being open to that, mm. I think, is quite important. And, and just briefly, are you are you hopeful now or are you pessimistic, bearing in mind what we've been through in the last 12 months or so? I knew the hope question was going to come up. The hope, hope is the thing that I've been asked about for the last year since, since I've been talking about this book. Um, but hope, because I, I don't think optimism and hope are the same thing. I'm not very optimistic, but I have hope. And I'm going to quote um, John Berger, who says that um, hope is not a guarantee. Hope is an energy. And that energy can be sometimes it's strongest in the darkest of moments or something like that. It's not quite an exact quote. But so I believe in the energy of pushing against and I believe in, in resistance. And Shu, how about you? Mm, I don't think I could have said it better myself. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 that's, I mean, that's the, yeah, I'm not optimistic. Um, and I've been increasingly less optimistic over. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm at a situation now where you know, if Trump gets re-elected in November, that would not surprise me. Um, but 
I, I would certainly, you, you cannot give up hope because it's, it, that's, that's the end, really. It really is. Okay, thank you. Thank you to our guests, Tessa McWatt and Anne Shue Mondell. Thanks to the BBC, NBC, ITN, Sky and Guardian for our news clips. Do please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked us, give us a share as well. But that's all for now. Goodbye.